Greetings and welcome. You're listening to the Genesis Podcast, the official podcast of the Genesis Community Church in Upland, California. It is our goal to inspire one another to change the world by effectively living in the way of Jesus. Check out our website, thegenesisstory.com. There, you can learn more about us, where and when we meet, ways to invest and support, but most importantly, how to get connected. Thank you for spending time with us today. Good morning. Are we are we on? Oh, what is that screen? Oh, what? Where am I? I'm on YouTube. Good to see you guys here this morning. Uh, we're going to start a new series. I'm excited about it, and I'm excited about the conversation afterwards. Um, and for those who are watching online, if you have questions that you would like to write down, you can on the comments there in YouTube, and I can look at them, and I can try and answer them as we go through the series, especially if there's passages in Scripture that you know come up as I'm talking. You say, what about this? Um, I want to kind of address these things. I might not have the answer to all this. Again, usually I feel if I'm doing my job, we leave here with more questions, um, which is good for me. I guess I don't have to answer anything. I just make you think a little more. But anyway, I hope this is something that's insightful for us all. But before we start, let's pause and let's pray. Father, we are grateful for opportunities like this to gather together and talk with one another, discuss and imagine what is being said through scripture, through tradition, and through our experiences. And we pray that your spirit would work among us here in this building, as well as those who are going to be watching or listening later on that you would provoke us to thought, that you would provoke us to love and compassion. We thank you for an opportunity for this to take place. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Brian. Something I wanted to mention, uh, this week we are going to be having unfiltered, is it Wednesday? I think it's, <laughs> you'd think one of us two doing it, we would know it. It was Wednesday or Thursday. It's going to be at Brian's house. It's going to be at 6.30. I know those two things. You, you live there. Wednesday, the 31st. We're going to have uh, unfiltered. Remember, unfiltered isn't necessarily a Genesis function. It's a time when we get together and have different topics where we discuss with one another things and we're able to share what we feel about those topics. Uh, This time we're going to be talking about conflict and is conflict good, bad? How does conflict play in our lives? And so usually these conversations provoke some deep and good conversation. And so I hope you guys will join us and you can in Invite someone if you want to come. We're not going to have necessarily, because it's at Brian and Alex's house, we're not going to have them make food for everyone. But if you want to bring something, (laughs) you you can. Uh, We might get a pizza and have some snacks, and we'll have like some wine, a few drinks. If you want to bring something, again, your beverage of choice, you can. Uh, But you're all welcome for that conversation. If you don't know where Brian lives, He's right there. Talk to him. And if you're watching and you don't know where he lives, message us and we can let you know. We're not just going to put it out there. Brian lives here, everybody. Um, So I'm sure Alex appreciates that. And Alex, right? Are you sharing that? (laughs) But anyway, that's happening Wednesday, 630. And I'd love to see you guys there. Um, Today, I'm going to start a topic, a series on hell. I know I, I've mentioned that online and I've gotten some response to that. Um, and before I even begin the conversation, I, I, I want to ask the question, is it okay to question? Is it okay to bring up thoughts about things that are controversial or troubling? 
You know, I remember when Rob Bell came out with his book, Love Wins, so many people commented on it. And after I read the book, I realized that all the people who commented on it didn't even read it because their comments showed the ignorance to what the book was talking about. But they were quick to criticize, be combative with it, call it heresy without ever reading it without ever understanding. In fact, I would make some quotes from that book every now and then and wouldn't say it was Rob Bell, and I'd get these people saying amen and agreeing. It's like, oh, yeah, by the way, it's Rob Bell. And they'd be like, what? No, that can't be. I thought it was different. It's important that we understand that nuance is a part of our understanding, that when we move things to black and white, we are putting God in a position that's limiting not only who God is, but our ability to understand God. And there was a quote, tyranny is the deliberate removal of nuance. And I love that because the deliberate removal of nuance allows you to have more control. And I wonder if that is something that is happening even in places like Scripture. I want to start by reading a passage in Romans. This has nothing to do with the topic of hell except in how Paul is addressing the differences that people have. And I'm going to be using the message translation. It will be on the screen. Romans chapter 14, starting at verse 1. Welcome with open arms, fellow believers who don't see things the way you do. And don't jump all over them every time they do or say something you don't agree with. We having problems with that? Okay. Okay. I'm going to keep reading. So you won't see it online, but listen. I just saw a meme about the sound guys, and it's like a volunteer sound guy. He's doing the, the sound, the video display, and editing, and then they go, why can't you get that up on time? And the guy's all sweating. So I feel for you guys. No... No worries. Okay, let me start again. Welcome with open arms, fellow believers who don't see things the way you do. And don't jump all over them every time they do or say something you don't agree with, even when it seems they are strong on opinions, but weak in the faith department. Remember, they have their own history to deal with. Treat them gently. For instance, a person who has been around for a while might well be convinced that he can eat anything on the table, while another with a different background might assume he should only be a vegetarian and eat accordingly. But since both are guests at Christ's table, wouldn't it be terribly rude if they fell to criticizing what the other ate or didn't eat? God, after all, invited them both to the table. Do you have any business crossing people off the guest list? or interfering with God's welcome? If there are corrections to be made or manners to be learned, God can handle that without your help. Or say one person thinks that some days should be set aside as holy and others think that each day is pretty much like any other. They are good reasons either way, so each person is free to follow the convictions of conscience. What's important in all this is that if you keep a holy day, keep it for God's sake. If you eat meat, eat it to the glory of God and thank God for prime rib. (laughs) If you're a vegetarian, eat vegetables to the glory of God and thank God for broccoli. None of us are permitted to insist on our own way in these matters. It's God we are answerable to all the way from life to death and everything in between, not each other. That's why Jesus lived and died and then lived again so that he could be our master across the entire range of life and death and free us from the petty tyrannies of each other. So where does that leave you when you criticize a brother? And where does that leave you when you condescend to a sister? I'd say it leaves you looking pretty silly or worse. Eventually, we're all going to end up kneeling side by side in the place of judgment facing God. Your critical and condescending ways aren't going to improve your position there one bit. 
Read it for yourselves in scripture. As I live and breathe, God says, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will tell the honest truth that I and only I am God. So mind your own business. You've got your hands full just taking care of your own life before God. Forget about deciding what's right for each other. Here's what you need to be concerned about, that you don't get in the way of someone else, making life more difficult than it already is. I'm convinced, Jesus convinced me, that everything as it is in itself is holy. We, of course, by the way, we treat it or talk about it can contaminate it. We could just end there, right? We could just like, okay, good night, you know, boom. A few things that stood out to me. One is, again, the welcoming of everyone to Christ's table. The other is the idea of we will all stand in judgment. It has such a different flavor in this than, oh, man, right? The judgment's going to, ooh. Judgment doesn't seem as condemning or, quote, eternal, in this sense, it's more of God is going to work out what's right with us together, that it's up to God to bring that about, not up to us. And so with this kind of posture, why talk about hell? And why question a tradition that has been there for so long for so many people. Why would I push into this? And I've been hesitant to in the past, one, because I, I, I wanted to be more prepared in what I was going to share. And also, I know that this is one of those things that people push hard against, just like they did the last couple of weeks when I talked about inerrancy and scripture, right? It's like I stepped into that knowing that for some people that was going to be a big thing, but it's time to step into this. It just is, and it's time to deal with it. I shared on a little video that I posted, and I want to share it again, how years ago, because I think this idea of hell and God condemning people to eternal torture is troubling for almost everybody. We, we, we wrestle with it, and we try to, to figure out how can it be just, how can it be good? And years ago, when I was working at a church, I was in my 20s at the time, and I was, you know, the youth minister, and I was the music director, and I was the outreach coordinator. I was slash all these things, and I also was a counselor when people would come in and they would send them to my office. I had no business being a counselor. I had no business, right? But, you know, there I was. I was on staff at the church, and I knew my Bible, so people come, you know, I could tell you stories, but... Yeah, that'll be another time because there's some funny stories. But this one time, a woman probably in her 50s came and she sat down. She was very troubled and she was concerned about the idea of hell. And as I was talking to her, she said that her husband had just passed away from cancer. He was an atheist. She said he was a good man. He was a good husband. He was a good father. And if I follow Jesus, I'm told that he I have to believe that he is going to be tormented forever in hell. I cannot move into a place where that is also in my mind. And she was asking me for an answer. And I was in a tradition that believed just that, that believed that, yeah, if you don't have Jesus in your life, you're going to hell. But I was also reading C.S. Lewis, and C.S. Lewis you know, everyone, all the Christians like to quote him, but they really wouldn't want him to be their pastor kind of a thing, you know, because like, you're a little out there, buddy. And so I was trying to present some things that I had heard, but at the end of it, she says, can you guarantee to me that my husband isn't in hell? And I just wanted to say yes. I, I wanted to say, yeah, no, he's not gonna be in hell. Why would God send him to hell? But it wasn't what I was taught. And so I said, no. And she said, I can't do this. And I began to feel the emotion that she had. How could she step into something where in the back of her mind, the person she loved and cared about and now lost, she had to think is being tormented forever and she would be forever separated from them. You, that's unbearable. And so I'm thankful for her making me feel the emotion that was there, putting more than just information 
to this ideology and putting emotion behind it. I saw a video on Instagram and I tried to find it again. I couldn't. It was a pastor who was asked the question about, you know, why would God send good people to hell? And he said, if you knew the holiness of God and the wretchedness of man, you would repent for even asking that question. All we deserve is hell. The best of us deserves hell. And it is the grace of God that sent his son to die so that we might have his approval to get into heaven. And I heard that and I'm just like, oh man, okay. My mind is going all these things. And I start thinking, okay, if this is a view, and I know it is, it's a very common view in Western Christianity that man is born sinful and he is you know, dead in his sin and trespasses and this is what is gonna happen to us. And then you start to wonder, well, what about some of the stories that Jesus talks about? What about the prodigal son where the father is looking for the son and receives him before the son even says, I'm sorry. The son doesn't even have a chance to, to confess what he's done wrong. The father just says, get the fatted calf, bring him here, kill him. We're gonna have a party. My son was dead, now he's alive. The guy didn't have any chance to interact and he was accepted. The 99... Sheep are left so that God could find the one. These stories seem in conflict, and and it's a very different picture from we deserve hell. But isn't hell in the Bible? It mentions hell repeatedly, doesn't it? And, And yet hell doesn't seem consistent with the theme of the prodigal son or with some of the character aspects of Jesus or with Paul's writing in Corinthians 13 that says, love is kind, love is patient, love keeps no record of wrong. Does God keep a record of wrong? Or does he keep no record wrong until you die and then the record comes back? Do I get to keep a record of wrong after someone dies? It's like, okay, you're forgiven, but you died, I'm bringing it back up it seems inconsistent in these things because the doctrine of hell tells us that for most of mankind, there is no arms welcoming us. There is no fatted calf going to be slain. There is no God there to receive us and bring us back home. That unlike the good fate of the lost son, there will ultimately be no reconciliation. But if you pick up almost any Bible translation, there it is, the word hell. With its fire, brimstone, its everlasting torture and torment. So if hell appears to be inconsistent in many ways with the character of God, a God who asks us to forgive our enemies as many times as necessary, even 70 times seven, which is a divine number, God asks us to do things that God seems unwilling to do to this belief. If love doesn't fail, but so many people are doomed to hell, maybe there is a different way to interpret the scripture. And if we're free to speak and ask questions, then here's some of the questions that I wanna ask and lean into over this series. Could there be a reason that some authoritative Bible translations don't even use the word hell or convey any kind of everlasting destruction throughout? Is there historically and scripturally a viable Christian theological position that doesn't teach a literal eternal hell? Is hell a necessary component of the gospel message or the Christian faith? Is it possible that hundreds of years of church doctrine formation and traditional teachings could have veered off course. Well, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you know I believe that with the inerrancy. And maybe that's true here. We, we take it for granted when we read a Bible, or at least I did for so long, that you're reading it and it's like, this is the word of God. What it says is what it means. And you kind of have this idea that It's that clear. Whatever is written there, it's coming from God, but the translations themselves vary. 
And what is being proclaimed is dependent on the people who are translating it. And of course, they have different ideas. They have to, right? It's not that it's wrong that they present it this way. They're doing what they think is right, presenting it in a way that they think is understandable. But is it possible that there's different ways to understand something and one of them might actually lead to a wrong conclusion as opposed to a better conclusion. Here's an example. This is in Hebrews chapter one, verse two. And you can put the first slide up, guys. This is four different translations, and this has nothing to do even with hell, okay? Hebrews one, two. In the NIV, it says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe the New American Standard, through whom he also made the world. Now, the world's a little smaller than the universe, right? But King James says, whom he also made the world, so we're getting a little bigger than one world. We're getting two worlds, but it's not quite the universe. And the BBE, which is the Bible in basic English, and through whom he made the order of the generations. Wait a second, where did the world go? And then the Young's literal translations, through whom also he did make the ages. All different translations from the same Greek text, meaning different things. If you're troubled by that, why? Why can't we look at that and say, huh, that's interesting. I wonder what the meaning is and let's look into it and let's talk about it. Why does it put us at such conflict to say, it's not certain, now I have, have these doubts. Does it make me doubt everything? Or maybe it makes me question more. And maybe that's a good thing to question these things. We know that translations vary depending on what the translator is trying to express. In Romans chapter seven, the translators translate the word flesh as sinful nature because that's what they think it means. But other commentators think that it's referring to the national Israel. And talking about flesh is talking about their actual nationality. Totally different. One sinful nature, one is a people. And you have to go through the book to find out what makes more sense. And that's okay. Shouldn't the eternal punishment of a large majority of souls be seen in all of scripture and not just a few passages? In other words, if this is as monumental as it is in most of Christendom, where most people are not going to be with God forever, but are going to be separated from God forever. Don't you think that would be seen throughout scripture? And yet it's not. In Genesis 2, when it says, in that day you will eat of it, you will surely die, speaking to Adam and Eve in that story. What does it mean you will surely die? I know for many people, it means you will be separated from God for all eternity, but that's not what it says. That is something we bring to the text because of a preconceived idea. There's nothing really in the Hebrew text, in the Old Testament, that talks about hell. There's only two instances in all of the Old Testament where hell is mentioned, and it's in the King James Bible and in the message translation. And I like the message translation. Do they know something the other translators don't? Why do they use the word hell and the others don't? The Hebrew word that the King James translates as hell is the word sheol, which is more accurately translated as grave, place of the dead, the unseen. It's similar to the Greek word Hades. And throughout the Old Testament, both good and bad people end up in Sheol at death. They end up in the grave. Why the King James would use hell where most other translators don't, they have a reason. 
they have an agenda. Again, I'm not saying agendas are wrong. Sometimes they're necessary, but sometimes they're wrong. And so I want to show you two examples, or four examples, actually, of how the word Sheol is translated and why it's translated. Go ahead and put up the next slide, Rick. In Psalm 9, verse 17, this is in the King James, the wicked shall be turned into hell, Sheol, and all the nations that forget God. Psalm 55, 15, let death seize upon them and let the wicked go down quick into hell. Again, the word Sheol. But in Psalm 89, verse 48, what man is he that liveth and shall not see death? Shall he deliver his soul from the hand of the grave? Same word. In Job 14, oh, that thou wouldest hide me in the grave, Sheol, that thou wouldest keep me secret until thy wrath be passed. The King James Version translates Sheol as hell whenever they want to convey that it's for a particular destination of wicked. Other translations don't because it is a choice that they made. So when you read something like this and it says the grave or it says hell, how do you take it? Is it hell? Is it this place of eternal? Well, it says the wicked. Well, why don't the other translators put it that way? Because that's not what the word means. They're bringing an idea into it that wasn't actually a part of the Hebrew tradition, right? Because the third example would convey that every person goes to hell, and the fourth is that Job's asking to go to hell. And that doesn't seem to make sense. Traditional Judaism firmly believes that death is not the end of human existence, But because Judaism is primarily focused on life here and now rather than the afterlife, Judaism does not have much dogma about the afterlife, and it leaves it open for conversation and opinion. And I love that. It's almost like, you know what? We don't know. For some reason, we feel we got to know. That certainty makes us feel good. The questions leave us wondering. But maybe the questions pull us into a a deeper connection. Maybe it's meant to. Jewish teachings on the subject of afterlife are rare. The Torah and most of the prophets don't speak of it at all. It has no clear reference to the afterlife in the Torah at all. Wouldn't you think something so important would be so foundational to our Bible, even in the very beginning, but it's not even there. In the New Testament, when defending hell, you'll often hear things like, hell is absolutely taught in the Bible. In fact, Jesus himself mentions hell more than anyone, even more than heaven. Does Jesus really talk about hell or could that be a misleading translation? and using a word inserted just like the word hell is used instead of sheol in some passages. Because there are three words that are used in the Greek that are translated as hell. Hades, which is like sheol that we just talked about, Gehenna and Tartaru. But none of them really conveys hell as we think of it today. I just talked about Sheol, the grave, and Hades would be very similar to that. The word Tartaru is only mentioned once in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, and it appears to be a temporary confinement for certain spirits until judgment. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, Tartaru, and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. That's the passage. And what's interesting about the word is that Tartaru is a verb, and the verb means to cast down. Yet it's used in 2 Peter as a noun that is now translated into hell. A more accurate translation should read, but cast them down and committed them to pits. Has a whole different feeling than hell when you have in your mind what hell is 
just like judgment has a different feeling in Romans when we read it earlier to maybe than what we've heard judgment is. And the word that's most often translated hell in the New Testament is the word Gehenna. And it's found only 12 times, once in James and the rest occurring in the gospels. The gospels that Jesus warned about Gehenna on only four unique occasions at most. And the reason we say that at most is because in Mark and Luke, it's referring to similar things also to that of Matthew. So there's only a few occasions where it's used. The word is not used at all in the Gospel of John. Again, I ask if this is so detrimental and important of where humanity is going to spend eternity, why would John not include it at all in his writings? The word Gehenna or Gehenom is literally a valley near Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, it was called the Valley of Ben-Hinnom or Topoth. And in this valley that's still there in Jerusalem to this day, it was located just outside of Jerusalem and it was notorious for extreme idolatry where they would take and worship of Moloch, which means king, their children and sacrifice them to Moloch. And they were condemned by God for this idolatry. And in this valley, some Israelite parents, as they would sacrifice their children, God referred to this as evil, detestable, and an abomination because the Israelites did such a thing, a thing that God says never has entered his mind to do or command. And that's in Jeremiah chapter seven. They are reported by their own prophets to have come under severe judgment in this very valley. So the idea of Gehenna has history. It has tradition. When Jesus says, Gehenna, they're thinking, oh, we remember that. That's talked about in Jeremiah. That's where they committed idolatry and did these terrible things that God said shouldn't be done. It's not underground somewhere. And there's no mention of it being eternal. By the time the New Testament, most scholars today acknowledge that this valley had turned into a garbage dump outside the city where fires were always burning to consume trash and dead bodies, where worms and maggots flourished. Lepers, criminals were sent there to live in shame away from the rest of society. Why would Jesus use a word that refers to a literal valley that the Jews were familiar with just outside of their city gates, a word that already had meaning Why is the word not consistently used in the Old Testament or even frequently used in the New Testament? If people are only given one chance in this lifetime to get it right, shouldn't hell be talked about much more? There are dietary laws that are talked about more than hell. Watch what you eat, people, right? And all I'm doing is raising these thoughts so that we can ask questions regarding this. If God's more concerned with whether I eat bacon than whether I go to hell, according to the words and according to the times that it's used, maybe I have a misconception of what that word or what's trying to be proclaimed there. Maybe it doesn't mean what I've been told it means. We should also be asking how and why Gehenna suddenly was renamed hell and nobody explained it to us. When did you decide to name this that? Who decided to say, you know what this word Gehenna, it now means hell. There's so many things like that in scripture. We're just not aware of them. The word church, the word church is a transliteration of a German word that was taken from the Latin. That was the word kirche. Now in the Greek, it's the word ekklesia, which means a gathering, but in the German form, it is a place because church used to be a place you went to, but in the original text, it was a gathering of people. 
and it became something different. And now we're kind of left juggling these two just because someone decided to keep this word instead of calling it this word. Why did they choose to call Gehenna hell? Maybe it's because the idea of the promised land in the Old Testament by many was thought to be heaven when you die, going to the promised land. But remember, when the Hebrews went to the promised land, there was giants, there was battles, there was a lot of things going on. It wasn't heaven. But maybe they thought, well, you know, the promised land is heaven, and so this must be, Gehenna must be hell. This one is with God. This one must be away from God. Maybe, I don't, I don't know. To symbolize, right, this idea of future with God or without But if it is how they arrived at such a notion, it was simply because they didn't realize that both Gehenna and the promised land symbolized temporary conditions of judgment and rewards in Jewish thought, not eternal destinies. Let me say that again. The promised land symbolizes, and Gehenna, conditions of judgment and rewards in Jewish thought, not eternal destinies. In the rabbinic traditions, there is a distinction between Sheol, the grave that we looked at, and Gehenna. Originally, Judaism described life after death as just an underworld named Sheol, which was known as the common pit or grave of humanity. And and I don't want to get too into the weeds with this because we can go for quite a while. But later, the influence of the Persian thought and the passing of time, the notion of hell crept into Jewish tradition and became associated with the biblical word Gehenom or Gehenon, the Valley of Hinnon. When Jesus warned his disciples and the religious leaders of the fires of Gehenna, I don't think he was warning them of eternal hell. I believe he warned them of the impending real world consequences for their blatant transgressions. What were their transgressions? It was ignoring the needs of the poor. It was usurping authority over those who had nothing, taking land from other people. Similar to actually what Jeremiah talked about when he mentions that valley. It had to do with how the people were behaving and living at the time, not what was gonna happen to them after they died. And then what about Paul? Okay, if you're Jewish, you've got the Old Testament and we've got these writings now in the New Testament, but Paul, he, he's, the, he's our Greek guy, right? He's the guy who's there for the non-Jewish people. So Jesus mentions Gehenna in a geographical place the Jews were familiar with on four occasions As Gentiles, the non-Jewish persons, our last remaining hope for the best bet of finding out about hell would have to fall on Paul. And unlike Jews, the New Testament Gentiles were new converts. They had no history to the Old Testament, to Abraham. And so we need to be educated. What what are you going to tell us about this? Wouldn't it be important for Paul to be able to help enlighten us to the meaning of hell and eternal torment after we die? But guess what? He never mentions Gehenna. Paul never mentions hell. Only one place he mentions being taken away from the face of the Lord for Eonian, which means an age, an age of destruction, Second Thessalonians, which the translators rendered eternal destruction. They took that word age and made it eternal. Just like we saw the translations in Hebrews 1 that take the universe, make it the world, make it age, they made it eternal. Paul does teach in 1 Corinthians that our works will be tested with fire And he mentions the corrective process for sin, but he never claims anybody is going to burn forever. If any man's works burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as so through fire. That's interesting use of fire as purification. I wonder 
if we will find more uses of fire in a purifying sense than a destroying sense. I, I know we will, because I'm going to go there. So I'm just giving you a heads up. But it's interesting, right? Because this idea of fire, this idea is to consume the things that are impure, not to consume the person. When I spoke about inerrancy, I pointed out that it was not long ago that this notion of biblical inerrancy was introduced, and it's similar, I believe, with hell. It's presented that hell has been proclaimed as truth for 2,000 years, and it's only now liberal interpretations that are bringing these questions about it, but that's not so. Many Christians insist that if you question hell, then you are a heretic. You're rejecting what has always been agreed upon about the church, and yet the doctrine of eternal torment was not a widely held view for the first five centuries after Christ. Particularly in the early Eastern church, the church of the early apostles, and the church fathers such as Paul, Clement of Alexandria, St. Georgia of Nicaea, Origen, and others. These are church fathers who never spoke of hell. The first person to write about eternal hell was the Latin West North African Tertullian, who was considered the father of the Latin church. And out of the six theological schools in Tertullian's day, the only school that taught the doctrine of eternal hell to its students was the Latin Roman school in Carthage, Africa. Four of the other five taught that through the death and resurrection of Christ, all people would be saved through restorative judgment and reconciliation in a plan of ages. And this teaching was called universal salvation or universal reconciliation. Have you guys ever heard that? Four of the five dentists recommend Trident, right? Four of the five schools believed this in the early writings, but one didn't. We can't deny that religion has been used to control and assert authority over people. And the religion will use what they can to have control, some religions, right? And that includes how they translate the Bible. If our Bible translations just say it like it is, then wouldn't you expect all the major translations to have the same number of hell occurrences? Here's, I think, an astonishing inconsistency of how many times the word hell occurs in some of the more familiar versions. Put up that last slide. The Message Bible occurs 56 times. The King James 54 times, the New Century, 15 times, the English Standard, 14, the New International Version, 14, the Amplified, 13, the New American Standard, 13, the Septuagint, zero, Young's Literal, zero, Concordant Literal, zero, Complete Jewish Bible, zero, the World English Bible, zero. Is there room to talk? Is there room to ask questions about what has been brought to the table regarding hell and challenge it. Because there's questions like the woman who came into my office had, like Rachel Held Evans had when she saw a young woman being executed by the Taliban in Afghanistan. And growing up in her face, she thought, well, because she's Muslim and not Christian, she's going to hell and she thought, the only reason she's Muslim is because where she's born. The only reason I'm Christian is because where I was born. If I was born in Afghanistan, guess what? I'd probably be Muslim. If I was born somewhere else, I'd be whatever that religion is. Are the chosen people only born where there's Christianity? God didn't put them in the right place, so that's it for them? There's questions. If we're all born utterly depraved, what about children? Our children, utterly depraved, you tell me that about my granddaughter, you're asking for a fight, right? And so what happens is, at least what happened in my tradition, the evangelical tradition, we made excuses for things like that. 
Oh, there's an age of accountability. Where's that in the Bible? Well, Paul says, you know, when I was a child, I was young. So we, we take this piece of the Bible and we hold on to it because we're having such a hard time grasping hold of God and what it actually equates to. There are actually some forms of Calvinism that just believe because you're born in sin, you're, even the children are gonna go to hell. There's some that believe that when you get to a certain age, okay, then you're accountable and whether you're gonna go to heaven or hell. Rob Bell in his book, Love Wins, he says, well then wouldn't it be better to kill your children before they come to age so you know they'll at least go to heaven than go to hell? He says it sarcastically, right? These are just questions. And if all were born into sin or because of Adam all sinned and now all have sinned, well, why aren't all redeemed if Christ is the answer to that? Why does Adam have more effect on humanity than Jesus? Again, we're told to love our enemies and to love 70 times, or forgive, 70 times seven, which is divine. Why would God ask us to do something that God seems unwilling to do himself? In the weeks to come, I hope we can make room for maybe different ways of thinking about hell because maybe, just maybe, the way we've learned things is skewed. Maybe we've been following a tradition that's been following a tradition that's never stopped to ask, wait a second, why has this started? I want to read a poem to you. I think it was written like the 1300s. It's called The Calf Path by Sam Walter Foss. One day through the primeval wood, a calf walked home as good calves should, but made a trail all bent askew, a crooked trail as all calves do. Since then, 300 years have fled and I infer the calf is dead, but still he left behind his trail and thereby hangs my moral tale. The trail was taken up next day by a lone dog that passed that way. And then a wise bellwether sheep pursued the trail over vale and steep and drew the flock behind him too, as good bellwethers always do. And from that day o'er hill and glade, through those old woods, a path was made. And many men wound in and out and dodged and turned and bent about and uttered words of righteous wrath because t'was such a crooked path but still they followed, do not laugh, the first migration of that calf. And though this winding woodway stalked because he wobbled when he walked, the forest path became a lane that bent and turned and turned again. The crooked lane became a road where many poor horses with his load toiled on beneath the burning sun and traveled some three miles in one. And thus a century and a half, they trode the footsteps of that calf. The years passed on in swiftness fleet. The road became a village street. And this before men were aware, a city's crowded thoroughfare. And soon the central street was this of a renowned metropolis. And men two centuries and a half trod the footsteps of that calf. Each day a hundred thousand route followed that zigzag calf about. Over this crooked journey went the traffic of a continent. A hundred thousand men were led by one calf near three centuries dead. They follow still his crooked way and lose 100 years a day. For thus such reverse is lent to well-established precedent. A moral lesson this might teach were I ordained and called to preach. For men are prone to go it blind along the calf paths of the mind and work away from sun to sun to do what other men have done. They follow in the beaten track and out and in and forth and back and still their devious course pursue to keep the path that others do. They keep the path a sacred grove along which all other lives may move. But how the wise old wood gods laugh who saw the first primeval calf. Ah, many things this tale might teach, but I am not ordained to preach." Let's pray.
Father, may we feel a sense of freedom to question, to discern the emotions we have when presented things as true that don't look like or resemble who we find in Christ. And I pray as we continue our conversation together that we would be mindful how deep, how important, how difficult this conversation is for so many. For those of us who have lost the ones that we love, we feel threatened. We, we want certainty. We want to know. May we be gentle in our conversation and know that you are gentler still. We are grateful for our time together. Thank you for allowing us others who have taken a different road and have guided us in different paths. Lead us by your spirit, we pray. For Christ's sake, amen. May we remember Jesus's words that on this rests all the law and prophets to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. And we love because we were first loved by him. God bless you guys. Have a tremendous week. Again, if you have questions, if you have scriptures concerning hell that you want me to talk about or anything like that, please send them to us. We'll try and cover those things in the next week or so. Okay, God bless you guys. You've been listening to the official podcast of Genesis Community Church in Upland, California. If you've been encouraged, found hope, been challenged by what you've heard, we'd like to ask you to help spread the word by sharing our podcast with your friends and family. You can also help support our podcast by visiting us at thegenesisstory.com. It has been our pleasure to have you join us today, and we hope you'll tune in again next week.